Hey, Annalie. Do you remember what it was that Ariana Huffington called Travis Kalanick back when uh, Susan Fowler-Rigetti wrote that whole blog post that exposed Uber as a hotbed of sexual harassment and abuse? It's really funny because you and I were having this conversation the other day and I was like, oh, yeah, she called him a difficult genius. And, you know, that's what I thought, too. Yeah. And she was she was just like basically apologizing for his behavior at the time. This was several years ago when Ariana Huffington, the entrepreneur, was brought into the Uber board to basically kind of clean house and. That was her assessment of him, that, you know, he was this difficult genius. The guy was amazing, but he was really difficult. But then I started doing some research and discovered that she actually called him a brilliant jerk. (laughs) That's so much better. That's just so much better. I know. (laughs) Yeah, it's really hard to keep track of all of the many wonderful euphemisms that we've used for, you know, shitty people who run Silicon Valley companies. It's just, you know, it's amazing. Yeah, (laughs) bouquet. A bouquet of euphemisms. Exactly. And Huffington did the same thing with Elon Musk just last year. She was interviewed about his takeover of Twitter, and she was very, very critical and basically said he was terrible. And then she called him a glow-in-the-dark genius, which I have to admit is actually kind of a good turn of phrase. I mean, how much radioactive material are they, like, storing at SpaceX? (laughs) Is this, like, I don't even know. (laughs) That's really scary. You know, the thing is... I feel like this idea of like the difficult genius has been with us forever, Mm -hmm. but it used to be something that we kind of applied more to artists. Like I think Picasso or, you know, or, you know, Marlon Brando or like, you know, some musicians that we could name who were like famous for like their horrible behavior and just like their destructive patterns of behavior. But it's, they're such geniuses. And like this, you know, when I started working in television, I kept hearing about like writer's rooms where like people would be terrorized by the people in charge because, but it's okay because they're geniuses. Right, the creativity outweighs the horror somehow. And usually you end up getting to a thing where like actually they'd they'd be getting way more done and actually coming up with better ideas if they weren't being such, you know, obnoxious babies. But this is is a meme, but... You know, it was it used to be applied mostly to artists and yeah, creative people. And but we do start to see it creeping into the tech world. I mean, now I think it's just part of it. It's a meme about tech entrepreneurs. But you really don't start seeing that until I would say the early 21st century. Um, the first example I could find when I was researching this was an article in 2010 from Tech Republic, a publication that I barely remember, um, which had an article in 2010 about four managers. So it was written to managers, and it was about dealing with difficult genius engineers who are toxic in the workplace. So it's clearly identifying these as toxic people, but it's looking at them as workers, not as leaders. Um, But then you start to get like a trickling out of this idea. And I think it reaches a kind of apotheosis in 2017 when this Google engineer, James Damore, a, someone who would love to think of himself as a difficult genius, uh, wrote this famous memo at Google about how women and POC just didn't belong in engineering roles at Google, and there were all these biological reasons for that. Yeah, and you know, I think it's not an accident. When you say 2017, that was the year that Me Too started, and that mm-hmm. was also the year that Susan Fowler-Rigetti was exposing the abuses at Uber and Ariana Huffington came out and called Travis Kalanick a brilliant jerk. But that is the thing. It, the Me Too movement happened 
we started critiquing bad behavior in the workplace, and that was when this this emerged as kind of a defense against that. But it was it was exposing an attitude that was already there. Yeah, I mean that idea of this amazing guy, and it's it's frequently a guy, although not always. Um, this amazing guy who also happens to be a toxic asshole, it's been out there for a long time, and it has its roots in science fiction. And I think the question that comes up, both in the fiction and now, of course, in real life, is, so do we fire these difficult geniuses or just let them do their horrible things? And that's one of the things we're going to talk about today. Yeah, in this second installment of our ongoing Silicon Valley versus science fiction series, we're going to be exploring the myth of the difficult genius. And we're going to talk about the roots of it, which go back to the figure of the mad scientist in early science fiction, and how that kind of became the like, brilliant, colorful, entertaining figure that we see today. Also, I talked a lot with Christopher Cantwell, who's kind of in a unique position to talk about this because he was the co-creator of the show Halt and Catch Fire, which is all about like the early days of the tech industry or the computer industry. And he also just finished an amazing run as the writer of the Iron Man comic dealing with Tony Stark. And he had some really interesting things to say about the difficult tech genius in science fiction and tech dramas. You're listening to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction and society. I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist and a science fiction writer, and my latest novel is called The Terraformers. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. Uh, my next novel, Promises Stronger Than Darkness, comes out in about a week. It's the final book of the Unstoppable Trilogy. Also, on our mini-episode next week, which is for patrons, we will be posting Charlie Jane's full interview with Christopher Cantwell. There's so much great stuff in there that we couldn't include in this episode. And by the way, did you know this podcast is entirely independent and most of our funding comes from you, our listeners, via Patreon? That's right. You're helping to keep us going and you're just like supporting us and filling us with like buoyant wisdom and joy through your financial and other contributions. And you know, you might have noticed that we've started having more advertising in our episodes uh, because we're, you know, trying to find other sources of revenue. This podcast is still just kind of barely breaking even and we're not really paying ourselves at all yet. If you become a patron at the $10 and above level, you can get the ad free version right in your Patreon feed and you can set up an RSS with that. And also, if you become a patron at any level, you're helping to make this podcast happen and you get mini episodes in between every single episode of the show. Plus, you get access to our Discord channel where we hang out all the time and we share opinions that you wouldn't even know about if you don't hang out in there, like bonus correct opinions. (laughs) Think about that. That could be all yours for just a few bucks a month or whatever you can afford. Anything you give goes right back into making our opinions even more correct. Find us at patreon.com slash our opinions are correct. Okay, let's get into it. Okay, so Annalie, how does science fiction create this myth of the difficult genius or brilliant jerk like Travis Kalanick or any of a number of other Silicon Valley leaders? I really think we have to start by thinking about 
the mad doctor or the mad scientist figure. And these are characters, tropes, really, that go all the way back to the origins of modern science fiction with people like Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein. And I think that one of the things we forget is that Frankenstein, remember, Frankenstein is the doctor, not the monster, the everybody's favorite little factoid to point out. Frankenstein is a romantic figure. He's in a 19th century sense. You know, he's um, super emo. He's really tragic. He feels an incredible sense of guilt about what he's doing. He's a loner. He literally lives in like a castle that has like lightning going around it and stuff. And he's messing around with nature in a way that's scientific, but also has like a feeling of almost like alchemy to it. And also Frankenstein is the figure who gives us the really important aspect of this trope, which is the idea of someone who's playing God and just goes too far. Yeah. And, you know, I think that part of that story and part of a lot of the other stories like this is that, you know, they're trying to do something that's actually kind of benign or, you know, at least worthwhile. Like Frankenstein is trying to create new life and like bring people back from the dead, which seems like a really cool thing to do. And he actually succeeds. And how is it that he's taking things too far? Or why is this story so dark and like scary? It's funny, like, nobody ever asks that question. Nobody says, well, why is this story so dark? And I think the answer is that generally, especially in the 19th century, but obviously going up until the present, people have thought it was really obvious, like, what Frankenstein was doing wrong. They're like, well, obviously, trying to create life is a bad thing. Which, when you think about it, no. That's actually the goal of a lot of medicine and science is to bring people back from death to prevent death. I mean, there's so many, especially in Silicon Valley now, people who are trying to basically turn themselves into Frankenstein, you know, to be reborn um, and, and to not die. And Frankenstein is kind of doing that. He's, he's pursuing something that is a legitimate kind of medicine. And I think what goes wrong, according to Mary Shelley, the author, is really how he mistreats the person that he creates. He creates this creature who is a person who he calls a monster, he abuses the monster, he doesn't name him, he kind of sends the monster into exile through his his maltreatment of him. And I think this is the piece of the difficult genius story that we often forget about, which is that the downfall of the mad scientist often comes from how he treats other people as objects or things to possess rather than as his equals. And remember, part of what makes Frankenstein this romantic figure is that he is destroyed for what he does. The monster righteously kills everything that Frankenstein loves. He leaves him lost and alone in the Arctic. He suffers. And that's really the essence of the early mad scientist is this person who is suffering for what he's done. Right. And like, it's a tragic figure. And, you know, so Frankenstein is kind of the one of the first examples of this trope of the kind of scientist who goes too far or is too careless or whatever. And like, then how does that develop over the next, like, you know, 200 years? And what other kind of tropes do we start seeing? Yeah, it's a great question, because I think that Frankenstein kind of snowballs into a much bigger figure, especially in the 20th century. So I want to talk just briefly about two iconic mad scientists from this period, one of whom is imaginary and one of whom is real. Uh, The first one is Dr. Moreau, 
the real one is J. Robert Oppenheimer, who I'll talk about in a second. So Dr. Moreau, for those of you unfamiliar with the legend, um, starts out as a character in an H.G. Wells novel, The Island of Dr. Moreau. That comes out in the very, very late, late 19th century. It's basically the turn of the century. And it ends up becoming a very important story in the 20th century. It's been made into a ton of movies. And even today, it's being retold in fiction. We've talked before about uh, the novel by Silvia Moreno-Garcia called Daughter of Dr. Moreau, which is just an incredible book. And these are all stories about a guy who is trying to turn non-human animals into humans. He's turning cats into cat women. He's turning bears into bear men um, and a whole variety of other animals on this island. And it's very much... For Wells, the original author, it's very much a metaphor about colonialism. It's about a white guy who comes to an island and invents reasons to enslave the people on the island by accusing them of being animalistic or bestial. Um, And he's just kind of literalizing it. He's like, oh, well, this person is actually working with non-human animals. But again, like Frankenstein, Moreau is destroyed for what he's done. He's gone too far. He's gone too far, again, not so much because he's trying to turn cats into people, but because he's abusing them. He's a horrific abuser. He enslaves all of these people that he creates. He um, has this house of pain where he takes them and and tortures them when they they don't obey him. So eventually, of course, thankfully, the uh, non-human animals rise up and just beat the shit out of Moreau. Uh, A very uh, happy ending (laughs) for all. Happy ending for the revolutionaries. And, uh, that got a little dark. <laughs> I, see, I, I see I that. I, I actually see that story as like one of triumph. Like it is dark, right? He's punished for what he does, and again, he's punished because he abuses these creatures, not because of the science he's doing. And I think that that's. I think that that's really interesting. Yeah. No, we're definitely seeing a theme here of like the the kind of dehumanizing and the the kind of going hand in hand with with horrible behavior. So okay, what about Oppenheimer? How does he fit into this? Yeah, I feel like Oppenheimer is maybe the possibly the first and last real life scientist who kind of fits into this model. And he's a little bit different. I mean, he's not a Moreau or a Frankenstein, but he kind of is because he creates something so horrific. He heads up the research group that developed the atomic bomb in the 1940s for the U.S. government. And he know you know, his bomb is going to kill tons of innocent people. And um, as a public figure, Oppenheimer became really famous for, after the war, pushing back against nuclear proliferation. He was part of the Communist Party. He became very anti-atomics, essentially. And of course, he was ended up getting kicked out of all of his government positions because he was... Uh, you know, against the Cold War, basically. So he's also this figure who is racked with guilt. He's a a tragic, romantic figure. Um, And he kind of plays with this metaphor of, um, or plays with this trope of the scientist who plays God. He gave this really famous speech toward the end of his life where he talked about seeing the bomb detonate and how it reminded him of a line from the Bhagavad Gita. He says, now I am become death. So, like I said, here we come back to this scientist who knows that he played God, but he also feels incredibly guilty about it. And his, he's wrecked. He's gutted by what he's done. Yeah, but of course, as an atheist, when people say playing God, I'm like, 
and who cares? Like, you know, like, I guess if you're going to play God, you really need to wear like a big fluffy robe. I, I don't get why playing, <laughs> like, it's like playing any other character. I don't know. But, you know, and then we see this turn though, right? Like late 20th century, this kind of like, you know, reckless wild scientist character suddenly kind of morphs into, you know, the innovators of Silicon Valley. And we start to see figures like Steve Jobs and also comic book heroes like Tony Stark. They're sexy, charismatic showmen, and they're not like tragic figures who are haunted by what they're done, except a little bit in the case of Tony Stark. And so, you know, I talked to Christopher Cantwell, who just wrote 25 issues of the Iron Man comic, about why Tony Stark has become such an icon in Silicon Valley and why so many people want to be like him. Tony Stark checks all these boxes where it's like, he's he's handsome. He's the most brilliant person in the room. He's the funniest person in the room. Like that comes from, I think, Robert Downey Jr. more, right? He wasn't really that before, but... He was um, definitely not funny before Robert Downey no, Jr. I remember. He's got kind of stuffy and like, Stan Lee even talked about the creation of that character. He was like, I want to make somebody that it'll be so hard to identify with and, ha- and be hard for a, uh, an audience to empathize with as a superhero and see if it works, right? Like that was part of the character's incarnation of let's make a rich billionaire who really has the kind of the cheat codes to life and turn him into a superhero and give him all these flaws. And, and Stanley thought that'd be a really difficult uh, figure for people to wrap themselves around and identify with. And the, the, the funny thing is it's, it's, it's become, I think even now, like it, it's evolved into such an aspirational figure, right? And so it was interesting to kind of think about how Tony Stark actually has changed in the 21st century because, you know, the comics I grew up reading with Tony Stark, he's not that kind of charismatic figure. Like Christopher was saying, he's kind of a difficult figure for people to admire, Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's fun to trace the history of Tony Stark because it kind of bridges the gap between like an Oppenheimer type guy who's really like a technocrat in some ways, and then he becomes this other thing. Yeah, and you know, Christopher and I talked a lot about like how in the comics, especially in the 20th century comics, Tony is racked with guilt about these weapons that his family helped to create. But also, he's this guy who has alcoholism, like he has a huge alcoholism storyline where he ends up in a cardboard box. And, you know, they give him this foil, uh, James Rhodes, Rhodey, who, you know, is also in the films. And, you know, he's kind of like the funny guy to Tony Stark's kind of uptight guy. So I was curious to hear more about how Tony Stark has changed. And this is what Christopher Cantwell had to say. And he's kind of a blowhard in a way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he's, he's very like, he's a little humorless and like, yeah, I mean, those early issues, he's very, he's very serious. He's very scientific. He's very like, we need to do this. And, you know, part of what was really interesting about that is this notion that people who kind of want to be Tony Stark, like the thing you said about him being more of a tortured figure in the past and like more of a Oppenheimer figure, that's kind of a core of his character. And you see that in the first Iron Man movie more. Yeah. And so Christopher Cantwell was talking to me about like how the people who really want to be Tony Stark are the people who most misunderstand who Tony Stark actually is. Go back to the original story of like a man, another scientist who may be as brilliant as Tony, who helps him build the suit. He didn't do that himself. Two men are in that cave. Right. Right, right, right. And they There's both Professor build Yinsen. that suit together. And that man dies so that Tony can live in that suit and escape in that suit. And that is sometimes 
I, I, I think a lot of people who celebrate Tony Stark in the wrong way forget that. That's a, a core tenet of that character, right? And that he builds himself as a weapon in order to dismantle the weapons profiteering his father and those before him have built in the world, right? Like he is a weapon to end all weapons, which itself is a loaded concept, but it's infinitely more complex than here's a handsome guy who has all the money, all the smarts, and he doesn't need anyone else in his life, and therefore he is safe, and he doesn't have to be afraid of being hurt by anyone else in the world, which I really feel is what all this masks, is just massive wells of insecurity in people. And the fear to connect. The fear to actually connect, right? Which is what technology can offer and promises, but is often refused and used for in the opposite way. Yeah, it's so funny because... I, I sort of feel like the the life of Tony Stark in the comics and the movies really is about the rise of this trope in Silicon Valley of the difficult genius who now, as you said, and, and as Cantwell said, you know, has left his guilt largely behind or just doesn't focus on it a lot. He's not a romantic figure. He's more of a rogue. And of mm-hmm. course, rogues can be romantic, but like they also can be, you know, thieves and just downright bad guys. And it's funny because... I feel like there's this classic moment in a lot of mad science stories, especially from the 20th century, where like you have this like lone figure of the scientist in his lab. It's almost always a guy. And he's like rubbing his hands together and he's either talking to himself or to his like Igor figure or to like somebody he has in a cage who he's about to experiment on. And he like gives his like evil info dump where he's like, and at last my plans to rule the world will come to fruition through building these glowing worms that shall go into everyone's brains. And it's like this, you know, purely terrible guy alone in this place. And and now I feel like every movie with a difficult genius slash mad scientist guy has to have a TED talk. And so instead of being, right. like, off in the middle of your, like, darkened lab with the glowing worms, you're, like, on stage at TED, and you're presenting your evil ideas to this adoring audience, and it's the same speech, right? It's the same, like, I'm going to build glowing worms, and, like, everyone is like, yay, standing ovation! Um, you know, there's a great moment in the TV series Orphan Black where the evil mad scientist does an actual TED Talk and, like, we hear about his awful plans of cloning and such. Um, And we see it in, like, the terrible movie Transcendence about brain uploading. Um, There's a a TED Talk in there. I feel like every, like, literally every mad scientist character has to have a TED Talk at some point. That's how you know someone's a genius, right? Is if they're giving a TED Talk and there's an audience that's like, yeah, that's how you know they're a genius. That's usually where you get the info dump. And it's really true. You're so right that that speech that they used to give, like, with lightning crackling around them in their lab... To rats. To an audience of like no one. Rats (laughs) is the rats. There's rats listening. Um, Uh Now they give that speech to to like the TED audience, and it's it's the same speech. It's just like usually a little bit more kind of zingy, and there's like yeah, and hey, I'm making a joke and stuff. Yeah, but it it is, and it's part of them becoming more charismatic, which is the thing that we're going to really talk about. And I think that part of you know, the shift is what these difficult geniuses are creating. Like, you know, it used to be about when you look at Frankenstein or Dr. Moreau, it was like they were trying to re 
work our biology and like Mm -hmm. change what it means to be human on a biological level or Oppenheimer is creating like this super weapon, the atomic bomb, which also, I mean, sidebar, the incredible Hulk, Bruce Banner is that guy, like explicitly he's creating this new kind of bomb and that's how he becomes the Hulk. And that is his whole story is about like, he did science that went too far and he's paying for it. But Mm -hmm. now it's about guys who are selling computer consumer electronics or software basically. Yeah, they've become like hucksters or like mm-hmm. they're, they're instead of being the guy in the lab, they're the, the head of sales, you know, which is why I think Steve Jobs is such an important real life person to think about in this context, because he really was he I mean, his genius was sales and product design, not technology. And yet he's still thought of as a technical genius, which I think is kind of hilarious. I think the thing that we have to keep in mind is that Over and over, the lesson that we get in these stories from science fiction that spill over into real life is that the problem with the mad scientist or the difficult genius isn't the science or the genius part. It's the part where they abuse people or, you know, kill people en masse with a giant bomb. It's about how even once you get into the consumer electronics space, these leaders are willing to mistreat their employees. They're willing to... To build their billionaire empires, they're willing to just destroy small companies with innovations. They'll just eat those companies up. And, you know, maybe these are people who do want to do something helpful for science, but they wind up destroying things rather than making them better. And you go from someone like Oppenheimer, who's mourning the way he's broken the world, to a Silicon Valley credo, which is that breaking things is awesome, and that's Yay! that's just this huge, huge shift. And after the break, we're going to talk about how the difficult genus of Silicon Valley is breaking the world and whether he's ever going to feel guilty about it. Okay, so as we talked about in the first half, the miserable, gloomy, mad scientist who's kind of in his, like, slimy lab somewhere in like a decaying castle has been replaced (laughs) with this kind of bouncy cute asshole who is charismatic and kind of lovable. Like you think Robert Downey Jr. in the Iron Man movies and you think about like, you know, some of these other stories of like lovable, obnoxious jerks who know everything. So why, obviously this can be a little annoying in some cases, but why does it actually matter? Why, why should we care? I mean, I think the first reason is that it's a huge distortion of history. Science and technology are not created by one person sitting in a room saying, whoa, I, I figured it out. It's it's always a team effort, a huge team effort. And when we see this idea of this inspiring genius, this, this one man who, you know, mythically um, develops like a brand new technology, it completely erases the work of all of the real people who are doing the innovation. And in fact, you know, these are people who are not even really geniuses. They're just people with lots of money who lead companies. And so the difficult genius idea, I think, basically erases workers, which is a form of abuse. Erasure is abuse. And I think erasing people is what allows you to abuse them. For sure. I mean, if you're not Take, if you're taking credit for their contributions, if you're not giving them credit, it's just one step beyond that to kind of treat them as disposable, to, you know, 
screw them over in various ways to make their lives miserable. And, you know, when I talked to Christopher Cantwell about this, about he co-created this show, Halt and Catch Fire, about like the history of the early computer industry. And I love that show so much. Tech industry. It's such a wonderful show. And it really explores a lot of these things in a very, you know, at a very deep level and is based in real history. Yeah. And he kind of talked to me about how the history of tech isn't, is not about a single genius innovator, but it, it's actually about like a whole ton of people working on things, including people who may be lost out. That's the history, right? Because then that's the reality of it. I think it's that there, there are, there's some kind of concept in the ether that everyone is chasing and not knowing exactly how to get there to the finish line. In American culture, in, in American business culture, and in capitalist culture, the idea of the loser is has become such a pejorative label that, especially in tech, is fascinating to me is that so much of the work of the progress is done by those who might be, at the end, considered the losers who don't end up Bill Gates or Steve Jobs, right? Jeff Bezos or whoever, that there are so many other people who build something like that, that it really is this kind of collective effort in the industry and in the, in the field and in terms of innovation. Now, I love that idea that like, actually the losers, like quote unquote losers are often people who really made something possible. Yeah, I think that's one of my favorite parts of Halt and Catch Fire, which I highly recommend that people check out because it really does get into the ways that these innovations come from people who get forgotten. And then there's just some really charismatic dude who's like, oh, I can figure out how to sell this and get money. Yeah, and often it's just about luck, right? And he talks to me a lot about like how there are stories that we're just starting to kind of know more about, about the people who made huge contributions, but they were never celebrated before. Everybody has an iPhone, but it's like, it's the stories of the Apple one and the computer, the computer homebrew, the homebrew computer club. And some of these other people, like the the woman who designed Centipede, the the arcade game and like all of this stuff and and Grace Hopper and, and, and these people that are now rising more to the fore. I think it's important because it, it challenges the singular rugged individual myth, which is largely a myth. And I think that's important in terms of, you know, of increasingly kind of fractured, bifurcated society and culture we're living in now to see how much of what we have and enjoy and uh, aspire to is, is due to collective effort as opposed to just one single person. That said, like, there is a lot to be said for Steve Jobs, for Bill Gates, for Walt Disney, for these, these people that can come in and guide something through the chaos of not knowing what something's going to become, uh, what the outcome's going to be, like navigate that fog of war uh, is pretty amazing. It's true that these are amazing leaders. And, you know, there's no doubt that they did transform the world. They broke the world in some ways. Um, people like Steve Jobs, but later people like Mark Zuckerberg and, you know, the founders of Google and lots of these companies that altered how we relate to each other, how we do business. But it doesn't justify the bad behavior of these CEOs and powerful scientists. And I feel like these, this, the myth of someone like Steve Jobs, for example, you know, really plays into 
the idea that we should just let these guys be as crappy as possible because somehow their genius is like saving us from like a dark, unenlightened past or maybe preventing us from heading into a dangerous future. But really, all they're doing is glorifying themselves. They're hiding behind this myth, and we're helping them hide behind this myth by continuing to prop them up as difficult geniuses instead of just like crappy dudes who are abusing their employees. Yeah, and you can be both. I mean, you know, that's the heartbreaking thing that we saw with a lot of artists, that like someone can create really terrific art and also be kind of a horrible person. And, you know, those are both true, but also sometimes you could create better stuff if you weren't such a jerk. And, you know, obviously you saw that with Ariana Huffington kind of like excusing all the misbehavior of Travis Kalanick and others at, at Uber. Yeah, although I would say part of this transformation that we've seen from the mad scientist figure to the difficult genius figure, it moves away from someone, from uh, someone who is actually creating a thing, right? Like a Frankenstein or a an atomic bomb and towards someone who is advertising a service. Um, a lot of these companies, like they are inventing new technologies, but like Uber is not a new technology. It's a new service using very old technology. And I mean, relatively old technology. I mean, the, the main innovation was that you could see where your, your driver was in real time, which did feel miraculous at first. And then it became really weird and oppressive at a certain point. Yeah. I, I mean, I felt like it was convenient at first. Was it world changing? Like, is it going to like resurrect someone who's dead? I, <laughs> I don't think so. It's, you know, it was it was a, it was one of many things that was just like kind of more convenient and using the smartphone in a way that kind of like, oh, this thing that was more complicated used to be simpler, but also there was a hidden cost. Yeah. And the hidden in cost of the people. Yeah, the hidden cost always turns out to be the workers. Um, Mm -hmm. And I mean, the workers, the gig workers who are created by something like Uber, we're just picking on Uber right now. But there's lots of other apps where you could say the same thing. And also, it's about how these billionaires with huge companies treat their employees. We mentioned at the top how movements like Me Too revealed uh, all this predatory behavior, all this abusive behavior Um, But not just sexual harassment. I mean, these are just abusive bosses in general. I should add, this isn't just men doing these things. There's a straight line between Sheryl Sandberg's, you know, lean-in idea and Elon Musk's notion of being hardcore at Twitter. You know, both lean-in and hardcore are about working harder, obeying the boss, and not questioning the system. And I remember when the book Lean In uh, by Sheryl Sandberg, who used to be an executive at Facebook, that became a huge meme, uh, especially among women working in Silicon Valley and other professional fields that had been dominated by men. And the whole idea was like, don't join a union. Don't become part of a feminist movement. Instead, just work twice as hard as every dude and like prove yourself. And I'm like, no. Mm -hmm. (laughs) not the right answer. But that is nope. that is what Elon Musk wants his employees to do at Twitter. So I really think it's all part of the same myth. Like the difficult genius is on top. The workers are leaning in and being hardcore. And the system works great. Except, of course, it doesn't. The system is, is terrible. Yeah. And I think that this kind of leads us to the question of progress, right? Because I feel like there's this moment where we kind of stopped believing that progress was inevitable or an unalloyed good 
that, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of coincides with this kind of tech savior who's supposed to come along. And it plays into things like the singularity and other stuff where tech is going to save us from the dark side of progress because we're going to make, we're going to advance so fast that we're going to leapfrog over all the environmental and other damage we've done. And we're going to talk more about that in forthcoming episodes. But basically we stopped being so obsessed with this notion of like the scientist who makes progress in science, but pays a huge personal price like Frankenstein or, or Moreau or Oppenheimer. And instead we started fantasizing about this figure of the manic pixie wonder boy who's going to <laughs> save us from the bad effects of progress by coming up with some miraculous new thing that's going to fix everything. Oh my God. I love the manic pixie wonder boy. I, I really, I want to watch like a really mean anime about that person now. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's, it, it is true that this plays into our idea of, like, who's going to lead us into progress. And it's funny because, you know, right now in Silicon Valley, it feels a little bit like progress. It's, it's not dead, but it's kind of slowing down. Like, Moore's Law turned out to be more of a Moore's suggestion. Um, well, and it, it was it true for a long time, but then it hit an actual, it hit a... It, it, it hit a wall. Hit a I guess Moore's law became like Moore's previous law, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is now was, no was, longer the was, law. It was true for a while there, yeah. But Moore's law was a kind of metaphor for what we expected Silicon Valley would do for us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have people like Ray Kurzweil, you know, writing books about the singularity where he's like, Moore's law for everything. Like, everything is going to be more lawed, or if you could turn that into a verb. We need more um, Moore's. Yeah, it's going to, we're going to have some Moore's. Um, and so we're going to have, we're going to sandwich all the progress together until it's Moore's <laughs> law. Yes, exactly. Um, but actually, chocolate progress, marshmallow. Anyway. I know. I'm excited about chocolate progress. But that, in a sense, you know, what you're saying about, like, we're going to have better chocolate and better marshmallows, that is sort of, like, the principle behind, like, gadget fetishism as progress. You know, there's this idea that, like, oh, you're going to have something that's, like, even shinier and tastier. Um, And I remember back in 2015 when I took over Gizmodo, which was a gadget blog um, that was extremely popular and well-read. And I was talking with you know, previous folks who had run Gizmodo, um, especially like during like the early 21st century. And a lot of them said things to me like, you know, gadget fetishism is kind of over, you know, like, like, well, we have computers in our pockets, but like, that's just kind of normal now. And yeah, Mm -hmm. I just, I feel like the miraculousness is gone. And so now we want to put even more emotional energy into these difficult geniuses because they're the ones who are kind of hyping us up and convincing us that like, yeah, there's another cool thing around the corner. Maybe it's like cryptocurrency. Maybe it's AI. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I I feel like around that same time that we had the sort of gadget fetishism was fading, there was all this hype about the smart home and the smart home was going to be this wonderful thing. And that's end up not really panning out. I feel like a lot of that stuff was rolled out and is now being unrolled out. It's like, it's really interesting. And I feel like we're at an interesting moment in our relationship to progress. And, you know, when I talked to Christopher Cantwell about this, he suggested that this toxic notion of the lone genius who's going to save us all has actually helped to make the internet worse. It's resulted in the internet that, that isolates us instead of bringing us together and helping us to understand each other the way that we thought it would. I find the internet so, so specious in its current incarnations. And I have a very wary viewpoint of technology. I think that 
the joy of Halt and Catch Fire was here are characters who are zealous and believe what they want to do and they want to change the world and it's all coming from a good place. It really was. I had those early conversations with Lee Pace about how Joe is many things, but he's not a snake oil salesman. He's not selling a lie. He really does believe uh, in what he's doing. I think what was unspoken in the show for the most part was that we knew these people would be a part of a massive sea change akin to the discovery of fire, Mm -hmm. but that there is now no off switch to where we are. There's no going back. We went so fast and so hard into it, just like Tony, that now we're knee deep into it and there's no way to almost course correct. There's just pure inertia carrying us forward. And I think the most dangerous, the most dangerous thing about leaning so hard into the Steve Jobs cult or the Tony Stark mold is that you get someone who will be purely selfish and solipsistic Mm -hmm. and everything else will cease to exist to them other than their own advancement. And, you know, Cantwell talked a lot to me about how this selfishness and this kind of solipsism leads to technology that drives us apart instead of bringing us together because tech companies figured out that anger and toxic conversations drive more engagement and are more addictive. Then you get an internet that is not a collective. You get an internet that is furthering your own self as consciousness. I think that is a great note to end on. Uh, Farewell to the difficult genius. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. This has been Our Opinions Are Correct. You can find us wherever you find podcasts. And if you've just stumbled upon us, you can subscribe in all the places. If you like us, please leave a review. It makes a huge difference. And, you know, you can also find us on Mastodon at Our Opinions and on Patreon at Our Opinions Are Correct and on TikTok at Our Opinions Are Correct and Instagram at Our Opinions. And thanks so much to Veronica Simonetti, our heroic audio producer. Thanks so much to Chris Palmer for our wonderful music. And, you know, we'll talk to you later. If you're a patron, we'll be hanging out with you in Discord. Bye! Bye.